This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. Welcome to New Books and Biography, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. My name is Daniel Moran. I am thrilled to be here today with David Crow, author of The Pale Face Lie, his memoir published in 2019 by Sandra Jonas Publishing. Welcome, David. Thank you, Daniel. And it's a pleasure to be here. And as I've already told you privately, the questions you've asked are amazing. And I'm very much looking forward to this. Yeah, I can't wait to see where these questions go and what what roads they lead us down. But so thanks for coming on. And it's funny because one of the ways we usually begin these podcasts is we ask the the guest to say a little about yourself. Now we're going to kind of modify that because the whole book is really about yourself. But if you could just tell tell our listeners like what are you doing now, and then we'll get into your childhood in the book. Well, I um, am president of a government relations firm, small firm in Washington D.C., where I have. Four brilliant partners who've been carrying me uh, their entire career. God bless them. And we lobby the federal government, uh, Republican, Democrat, House, Senate, executive, legislative. And we work on a core set of issues that are business related and uh, surprisingly diverse firm. And it's been, uh, you know, like my entire life, I just carved this thing out from scratch, built a company attracted people far better than myself. And that's been my secret. So we're still working away in DC. um, And no matter how insane you think it is, it's worse. But as we discussed, I'm on the edge of insanity anyway. So yeah, probably, probably for me, this is no big deal. (laughs) Well, let's talk about your book. Now, before we do, though, I want to give a disclaimer. Anybody who's listening who has not read the book yet, I urge you to do so and then listen to this interview because there's probably going to be spoilers. And I say this because some of the surprises in the book are – the book is engineered to surprise the reader at certain key moments to kind of like relive the surprises you had as a kid. So there's my due diligence. There might be spoilers, um, but it's a great, great read. Read it and then listen to the interview. Okay, so let's start. Before I began your book, before I began The Pale Face Lie, I thought it was going to be a memoir about someone growing up on a Navajo reservation, almost like a sociological portrait of that place, 
and the struggles people face there. And there is some of that book. But what I learned is that, you know, I was wrong. The story's really about your relationship with your father. So let's start by talking about your father. Talk about his time in San Quentin, what he did to get there, and his parole. Yes. Um, thank you, Daniel. So if I ran into you on an elevator and I was holding the book and you said, tell me, I would tell you my elevator speech is my dad committed a crime that could have very easily gotten him the death penalty. When he got out, he got out early for several reasons. One, his IQ tested astronomical and the psychiatrist and the the warden had a a theory about most prisoners are idiots and they are. The second thing is my dad was the most amazing BS artist you have ever met. And as he said, you'd think most prisoners are really smart about talking their way out of it. He said, mostly they're idiots and they don't talk their way out of it. And the third thing is uh, my dad was just under the age of 21 when he went in. He had a pregnant wife, my older sister, born five years, five years older than me. And so when he got out, he had really two issues, though. No matter how much of a BS artist and no matter how lucky he got, the guy he tried to kill didn't bleed out. Uh, his wife found him minutes before he would have de- died. And if that happened, you'd be interviewing somebody else. It would not be me. <clears throat> so when dad got out, he, he had to do, he had to check the violent felony box then and now. And so employers might be forgiving about maybe drugs or things. They're not forgiven. They're not very forgiving about guys who try to kill people. So he fled to the Navajo Indian Reservation knowing at that time in the 50s and 60s, there weren't Navajos really trained for these jobs. The affirmative action and all the things that created uh, what now is a substantially educated uh, group. If you look at the Navajo tribal government, they all have great, you know, they're like you, they have PhDs, they're lawyers, they're, you know, but then they didn't have any of it. So if you got to the Navajo Indian Reservation in the 50s, and you didn't kill somebody the first day, or you weren't too drunk to get through the day, they promoted you. So dad faked his uh, references, and no one cared, no one looked. The other thing is, he had an accomplice that he had really, really double-crossed. And the accomplice wasn't a violent man, but he was dead set on killing my dad for what my dad did to him. Dad wasn't afraid of him one-on-one, but he was terrified of an ambush. So when he went to the Navajo Indian Reservation to work, he accomplished both goals. He knew his accomplice would never find him. You know, our phone numbers and our addresses were never, ever written down anywhere. And you go way pre-internet, pre-any of that. You couldn't, you know, I, I, I made a joke that never made it into my book, but it could have. If Lee Harvey Oswald had shot President Kennedy and drove to Fort Defiance, Arizona, he would have just been Lee, the crazy guy who, you know, hated JFK, and he, no one would have ever even looked for him, right? I mean, you, it was, you talk about isolated, you could not be more isolated. But then the first memory I have, and it's a powerful memory, is my dad driving me out into the open tundra on the reservation and saying, we have to get rid of your mother because if we don't, you'll grow up and be crazy just like her. So be on alert for me getting rid of her. And like, if you start from that point, it is just the most wild ride in the world where things never let up until like I'm in my 20s and then they get worse. As you know, 
uh, this book is the most unbelievable roller coaster. And I didn't tell anybody <clears throat> what happened to me until my early 50s because I felt like, one, I couldn't, you know, um, you, you, in polite society, you know, people are going to hire you. People, and people will think badly of you. The other thing that <clears throat> is one of my mantras is childhood is a city you can never leave. And if it's bad enough for you, if you're broken enough, <clears throat> there's a point where you don't like yourself. You don't trust anybody because the people you're supposed to trust are vicious. And you think you deserve it. You grow to believe you deserve it. <clears throat> and the second part of that is you grow to believe you can't do any better. And so I've had over 20,000 reviews on Goodreads, 11,100 in Amazon, and letters from prisoners and people all over the world. <clears throat> and there's two kinds of letters that really upset me and make me feel good about writing the book. One is from prisoners that say, I grew up with a dad like yours, and I'm in my third 10-year run in, in, in the big house. <clears throat> I could never overcome it. I answer every single letter, always running back, yeah, you can make some different decisions. You really can. <clears throat> you may have to work real hard at this, but of course you can. Uh, one guy said, you know, my kids will hate me on my deathbed. And I said, your goal is to get out and turn out, make them be your, their hero on your deathbed because <clears throat> you overcame all this. The second kind of letter that upsets me, and it actually upsets me more, is it'll be an older person <clears throat> who went through experience like mine, and they feel unloved, unworthy. You know, their parents have told them they're fat, they're dumb, they're stupid, they're <clears throat> all these things. And they still believe it, and they've never been able to have intimacy or really connect with somebody. <clears throat> and they, they don't know how to trust, they don't know how to love. They were broken early, and I was too but they weren't able to repair it. And I think most cycles that I see, whether it's alcoholism or, you know, domestic abuse or any of it, people are raised this way and then they perpetuate it. They don't know what to do to break out. <clears throat> and I'm a, I'm a believer you can break away, but there will be nothing easy about it. It will be an incredible amount of work. And it's like unknotting, you know, a, a ball of nothing but knots think of a fishing line. And so as we were talking, when you read these self-help books, write a letter to your younger self saying, I love you. You know, I mean, to me, that's just complete nonsense. <clears throat> um, or, you know, you, you, life, you can be anything you want to be just, you know, it's like, it's BS, BS, BS. Um, the work you're going to do to undo this is going to be the work of your life. Yeah, no, that's, that's certainly true. Because a couple of things you reminded me of in that answer was, was that, you know, you said it wasn't easy, like the fishing line metaphor. As a reader, I was 100 pages in, and I thought to myself, you, you have that feeling when you read a book like this, which is, I, I can't believe there's more to this story. And there's another 250 pages, and you know that it's only going to get worse as a reader. So that and there's certainly that sense of dread. And you also reminded me of what um, the great uh, – the great American author Flannery O'Connor once said, she said, anyone who survives their childhood has enough material to write about for, for the rest of their lives. And it's that whole idea that your childhood never leaves you. You're right. And if you had a childhood like his or mine, and it's funny, you ask me about my work. A lot of times clients will say, why should I hire you? And I say, because I lived to be 10 years old. And if you understood what those first 10 years are like, you'd think I was the greatest lobbyist that ever lived. So yeah. hire me. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, let's stick with your father for a little bit. You know, your father had a lot, because he is like the main figure in the book. He had a lot, he had a, a lot of assumptions that kind of surfaced throughout the book, right? Like before you mentioned that he thought people were idiots. He says the easiest money you'll ever make is off of other people's idiocy. Um, when teachers told him that you were dyslexic, 
He said dyslexic is a fancy word for stupid. So he has these moments throughout the book and where he kind of like gives a quick response and you get a window into the way he saw the world and his place in it, right? Like what if you had to encapsulate that, like what what did he assume about the world and his place in it? Dad was a brilliant, angry psychopath. <clears throat> so he had a bad childhood and there's no question, right? His, his, uh, I think his father was dyslexic, never learned to read or write, very bright guy. First time he ever left Texas, he landed in Germany in World War One. got mustard gas, <clears throat> came back. He, he had a horrible life, right? And um, he made sure dad had a horrible life and dad made sure we had a horrible life because, you know, why not keep it going? <clears throat> but dad was incredibly bright, incredibly inquisitive, read everything all the time. I remember one time I walked in and he's reading a physics book and he, I, he said, this is easy to understand. I'm like, well, not, no. He said, well, it just explains itself to you. And I'm like, oh my God. <clears throat> so dad was one of those guys. And luckily my son has that, but it skipped me big time. <clears throat> so back to dad, dad was very, very bright. Dad was very, very inquisitive. And dad had a strong, strong will. But the problem is he got in his way all the time. <clears throat> um, you know, he was one of these people who everything made him mad. He had a chip on his shoulder that is almost hard to measure. <clears throat> um, he could get in fights and in disagreements over something so minor <clears throat> that it would just absolutely baffle you. One story that didn't make the book, but it really explains dad. <clears throat> so we, he, he works at the Bureau of Indian Affairs. This is after his first stint at uh, El Paso Natural Gas. And of course, he's smarter than all these morons he's working around. He thinks it, <clears throat> but he probably really is, right? Because uh, no disrespect, but if you're like an Anglo guy on a reservation in the 50s, uh, your your idea of ambition is just don't wet on yourself before you get off your desk and go home. <clears throat> and so dad had a, this, this guy that he worked with named Red, one of the few Anglos, and Red had this Stetson. And, and I think you're listening to hear this because this is dad. This is so dad. <clears throat> so Red would come in every day. These are Quonset Hut places and a row of desks and it's kind of a long you know, hallway. And Red would set that Stetson down like it was gold. And he would stare at it and kind of touch it. And I mean, it was just the most precious thing in Red's life. That infuriated Dad. He came home one day and he said, that dumbass Red, he's a fancy a-hole. <clears throat> and so I said, well, well, why? So he tells me this story. I say, oh, Dad, that doesn't make any sense. He said, oh, how dare him think he's... So what Dad did is he got a guy... They went to town and bought two identical Stetsons, one a quarter size higher and one a quarter size lower. They cut out the label so that all three labels, including Stead original, would have the same size. And during the day, they would switch the Stetsons. So, and of course, red was not your brightest bulb. He pulled the Stetson down and it would hit his eyebrows. <clears throat> Sometimes it would stick at the top of his head. And it, he, they never, <laughs> Red never figured this out. <clears throat> Dad thought it was hilarious. He was willing to spend a lot of money. Um, Ed just, you know, Red infuriated him. <clears throat> the, the, the other story that really describes him perfectly 
is us pulling up in front of a gas station. Now, a reservation gas station is an interesting thing. <clears throat> and this is a rusted out trailer with two pumps out front buried in sand, right? And this was Black Bear Gas Station. So Black Bear Gas Station is this rusted out trailer with plywood that says Black Bear, where the ink is run down. This guy had trapped a big black bear inside of a of chicken wire. <clears throat> so you've got this miserable adult black bear and this, as dad would call it, this short, fat Mexican man who runs this old gas station. And so we pull up and there's a Navajo family next to us, a family of six in the back of a pickup. And my job is to read dad's face and decide when he's going to go thermonuclear. <clears throat> so I, when we pull up, because we've been in the car forever, my little sister and brother run to the outhouse out back. I'm studying dad's face, and dad has what I call the garden hose blood vessel between the center of his eyes and his forehead. It bulges like a, like a garden hose, and his eyes bug out like a Volkswagen Beetle. So when you get to what I call the Y bug, somebody's going to die, and it might be him, it might be you, it might. he is completely angry. <clears throat> so I'm trying to figure out why he's angry. So he goes into the back of our car, the brown the brown bomber, as I call it, the green bomber, and he gets out some wire clippers. And all at once, I realize he's going to let this bear out. <clears throat> so the owner figures it out. The owner comes running at him. Dad hits him as hard as he can, right in the middle of the face, knocks him down, breaks his glasses. He's, Dad has, at this point, cut the wire so that the bear's right paws all the way out. Dad picks up the guy and holds him up to the bear and says, I'm coming back in one hour. If that bear's still there, he's going to eat your fat brown, you know what. He throws the guy on the ground. The, the Navajo family has just taken off, right? They pulled the, the hose off with them. They got out of there so fast. <clears throat> Dad came back, and the place was padlocked, and there's no bear. So when he got mad, when he got righteously indignant, and sometimes he was right. I mean, he wasn't right how he did it, but trapping a bear. But anything that set Dad off... He was, you know, he's going to fight you till you die or till you quit or till you leave. And he was like that every day of his life. And how he didn't get himself killed is the greatest miracle ever, <clears throat> because he was just a volatile bomb, angry bomb all the time. The way you describe him, he sounds so much like uh, Jake LaMotta, who Robert De Niro played in the movie Raging Bull, where he, he, all this anger, the first scene of Raging Bull, when he flips the table over because his wife burns a steak, and, and, you, and you said thermonuclear, and the book does such a good job of conveying what it's like to be a kid walking around on eggshells, like, is this the day I'm going to get beat up, or is this the day I'm not? And and if you're not, it's a good day, and, and you know, good day versus bad day. And I think that 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 that, that simmering anger that you have to live with all the time and what that does to a family, that, that's a big theme of the book. Oh, my God. And one thing, Daniel, that I think is appropriate to talk about now, one of the things I thought most like Dad, and that's bad and good, but part of it was for me was survival. <clears throat> my goal was to stop him as many times as I could, whether it was beating my brother and I to you know near death with the buckle end of a belt or you know, getting in a fight with this guy <clears throat> at the gas station. And Dad had a look right you could catch him in a nanosecond before the why bug thing happened. If you caught him and you could make him laugh or divert him, you could push him off. <clears throat> Once that he got to the point where he was angry, nothing stopped him. Just like Lamato, right? 
if you got him in the ring in the right situation, he's going to win the fight. In the wrong situation, he might kill the ref before you get to the fight. And uh, you never knew which was which. And it's, and guys like that are impossible to manage. So my goal was not only to be make him think I'm his alter ego, but get into his head enough to stop him. And then at some point, I studied him. And it saved me. Um, I'm not going to do a spoiler alert. At the end of the book, the reader will find, if I didn't understand my dad completely, very likely he would have killed me. I yeah. think he would have. Yeah. That's, but that's I understood it. him. I knew what he thought. I knew what he would do before he would do it. Eventually, I hit a point where I understood him better than he understood himself. Yeah, and if this were a novel, that would be a real possibility. The you know, the, if if the reader didn't know that David Crow was a guy you know who wrote a memoir about his life and stuff like that, but if this were presented as a novel, the reader would definitely be hanging in the air right in the middle of the book, saying, "Is this is he going to kill the kid? Like, is that is he going to kill David? And is that what's going to happen?" Because it, the reader becomes the reader's stomach is in a knot, just like the the, the character of you in the book. You know, Dad was the kind of character I think that. Um novelist study you know when you read about the great the great books of violence and anger and crazy people um i think he would have been the model for a dozen good novels one of the things in my life my wife and kids were really angry when i wrote this book and my siblings more angry like you don't dig up all this dirty laundry but for me it wasn't right i'm not a victim never felt i was uh, never felt sorry for myself. Still don't. I may feel sorry for some of the people I messed with, but I never, I was just one of those guys that never felt bad about who I was. I just wanted to get through it. I used dark humor because apparently that helped me cope. And, uh, did, and, and what I did, a lot of you said some of what I did was cool. And it was <clears throat> as a kid, some of it's hilarious. And some of it's like, Oh my God, who is this guy? <clears throat> but one of the things I saw in dad is you could study him and you could write a hundred books about him. <clears throat> when, uh, when I was about 12, 10, 12, Truman Capote did the book in true blood <clears throat> in cold blood. And it was about two guys that committed murders. Neither one would have done it without the other. <clears throat> so I was a town paper boy and always read everything, even though I was dyslexic, it was slow, but I read it. <clears throat> and one day we're on one of our stealing trips. Dad and I would go steal government tools uh, because after all the, Government stole the, from the Navajos, put them on a reservation. So we're stealing from the stealers. Everything's fine. <clears throat> and uh, just another dad crow theory. But we're going along and he says, you know, I work inside of the warden's office. There's two or three things I got to do because he had a high IQ and they liked him. <clears throat> and so he helped do autopsies and some things like that and helped uh, prepare the menu for prisoners. His dad said that's really the only thing they had other than, forgive me, it was homosexual sex to keep them going. And he said, those two things, those are huge problems in prisons because guys just give up. And so uh, one day he's there and two prisoners come through and they're signing the paperwork to transfer them to another maximum security prison. <clears throat> so dad walked up to the chief psychiatrist and said, those two guys, if you put them together, they will kill. <clears throat> And the psychiatrist said, neither one of them are violent criminals. They're lifers, you know, they're thieves. <clears throat> and he said, I promise you there's a dynamic. I've been watching them for about an hour because you've been 
delayed on the paperwork, <clears throat> there's something going on with those guys. And so they dismissed him. But uh, when they transferred him, one guy put his handcuffs around the driver's necks and basically uh, decapitated him and they escaped. <clears throat> and I asked Ed how he knew. And I had, was enough familiar with the In Cold Blood story because you know, it was most sensational murder <clears throat> made all the papers. And he said, there are certain times when two prisoners will get together and they'll try to impress each other and one up each other. <clears throat> and he said, it can lead to killing. He understood that. I said, what, how could you tell? I could look in their eyes and look at them interact. I knew. Dad, and, and I believe that he did, but he taught me all this stuff, right? <clears throat> he would explain to me all the stories in the yard. No one ever goes to prison for something they've done, by the way. They've, they're all innocent, and you're ridiculous to think they're guilty. However, <clears throat> in the big yard, they'll talk about all the murders and things they got away with <clears throat> that no one knows about. And so Dad would tell me these stories, and i go, oh, my God, I would listen to this stuff. And I'd be mesmerized and terrified all at the same time. That's that's actually what it's like to read the book. It's it's mesmerizing and terrifying, you know, all at the same time. So we talked a lot about your dad. Let, let's move over to you a little. And I thought of this because of what you just said about Red's hat, the Stetson hat, which is 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 cruel. But in one sense, it's kind of funny. If this happened on a TV show or, you know, in The, in the Simpsons, it would be really funny, right? Um you know, your dad said to you, and here's a quote from the book, be careful whenever everything is given to you because then you'll be totally beholden to your masters. That's another one of his just throwaway assumptions, right? And the book is all about you looking for things from other people. Like he says, don't be beholden, but you want to be, you're looking for things from other people, right? And the Stetson hat thing reminded me of all the pranks you pull as a kid, right? So you pull all these pranks as a kid. And again, some of them are like Bart Simpson. They're kind of funny. And some of them are, are, are downright dangerous, right? You, you um, Really dangerous. So you tell this great story about rolling a giant tire truck in the middle of, a, of an intersection and you know causing chaos. I mean, people could die with you doing that. So what did you, what did you want as a kid? And, and how were all these pranks tied up in what you wanted? Well, this, this is a really good question, and one of these psychological <clears throat> angles that no one really asked me about. So there were two or three things going on in my head all the time. <clears throat> one is not not having him beat me to death that night because of something he thought I did wrong. If he thought I did something funny, it didn't matter how destructive, <clears throat> as long as no one blamed him and he thought it was hilarious. And getting even with the man, whoever the man was, was always a big, a big thing. Because the world is full of idiots, right? And that's oh, your yeah. job oh, to yeah. get rid of all these, to get even with these oh, people, yeah. right? So um, I was also precocious, terrified, all these things. And I was acting out constantly <clears throat> to the point where I have no idea how I survived. I mean, I've tried to go back and uh, apologize to everybody and... Uh, the ones that are alive, I did. And some of them accepted the apology and some of them said, I hate you and I hoped I'd never see you again. I'm saying, well, I'm really sorry you feel that way <clears throat> and I'm not going to justify anything. <clears throat> That's who I was and it's what I did. But part of it was we wanted to get away with the biggest things we could get away with because dad would love that. <clears throat> Unless, of course, he got blamed for it. So in my head, I'm. it took me a very long time to grow up. Maybe I'm not there yet. Um, but I wanted to be his ultimate uh, guy that he thought was incredibly funny, that did terrible things to get approval. 
but then I wanted people to like me. I wanted people to laugh at me. I wanted people to like me. <clears throat> I wanted to get away with stuff you're not supposed to get away with. And then I wanted dad to not beat me to death when I got home. All of these things were like a pinball machine bouncing around. You're like, explain to me the rhyme, the reason, the strategy. And it's like, you know, there really wasn't one. I got up. I decided to raise hell. I decided to raise as much hell as I could raise. And I decided to do that every minute of the day until I had to go home. <clears throat> and then the next day I started over. So I think one of the things that made the book work <clears throat> is the authenticity, right? I mean, my publisher said, oh, you can't write this down. I said, no, no, either it's a novel or it's a true story. <clears throat> I did all this stuff, right? And uh, she's like, well, how the hell did you get through it? And I said, I just did. And if and all of my friends who've known me from college on would None of them were surprised, although none of them knew, because just I'm that crazy friend you have, right? But my strategy was less of a strategy than a way of avoiding the pain of going home. I never wanted to be home. I never wanted to think about being one of the four crow children. I never wanted to imagine what my future would be there because there was nothing about it that I wanted yeah. And that's a terrible feeling. That's a terrible, terrible it feeling. It is a terrible feeling and it never really went away. Yeah. So you, you, you pull these pranks and, you know, um, it's a way of striking out at the world. I, I just have to ask you about this specific prank. Tell the readers or tell the listeners about Query Man. Oh, Query Man's my favorite. I love Query Man. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You could do a book on Query Man. So my family moved from the reservation to a town called Kensington, Maryland. And we lived there for about a year, and then Dad got sent back to the reservation. Um, but so here we are in Kensington, Maryland, really fancy place. Every you know, I'm I'm looking around at this part of the book. I don't think will give it away, but I'm looking around, and one block has more infrastructure than the whole reservation. <clears throat> Cars I've only seen in magazines are parked on every street, and it's like, oh my god. Right. And you, you walk into school and you're five years behind. So one Saturday, my little sister was opened a little lemonade stand in front of the house. And the house we lived on in Kensington had a little creek that ran in front of it. And then the other side of the street continued. Kensington Parkway, it's called. So what one day dad and I are running an errand with my brother, probably going to a P.O. box to get money from, you know, heist he's pulled in West Virginia, which is later in the book. <clears throat> and we come home and my little sister's got a fat lip, black eye, her lemonade stand's been knocked over, and her bike's been thrown in the creek. <clears throat> so she explains that this boy across the way did this. So dad walks my brother and I over to the house <clears throat> and this would actually make a damn good movie. <clears throat> he knocks on the door and a guy comes in a coat and tie on a Saturday. <clears throat> and he's got these um, glasses like uh, <clears throat> Mr. Wilson on Dennis the Menace, you know, these guys. And he's an attorney, apparently. <clears throat> and my dad says, hey, your boy beat up my girl. And what the hell are you going to do about it? And he says, well, I will go ask him. I will query him. Slams the door in dad's face, <clears throat> which is really not the right thing. No, and he has no idea who he's dealing with. So he comes back like five minutes later and he says, well, I queried my son and he may have bumped over a glass of lemonade. But as you know, boys will be boys. 
slams the door back in my dad's face. <clears throat> we walking along and my dad looks at my brother and I said, boys, I think you know what to do. <clears throat> so during that day, <clears throat> we did several things. First thing we did is we under, we learned about yellow pages. This is great stuff. <clears throat> and we started ordering everything. And my boys, I was like, 15 at this time, sounded like a woman almost. Like I wasn't very mature about that either. <clears throat> so we ordered a washer and dryer. We ordered lumber. <clears throat> we ordered flowers. You know, our mom had just gotten out of the hospital. <clears throat> then we ordered pizza from like a dozen pizza places. We're having a party. <clears throat> every florist, we, we called every business. And, we, and that back in the day, they didn't ask for a credit card or anything. So don't worry, my dad's waiting for you. <clears throat> we called a, tr- a filled truck a truck that had filled dirt and said, yeah, drop a ton on the driveway and just walk in and my dad will pay you. <clears throat> so we, we did this all throughout the day. And this guy was just off balance all the time. <clears throat> so then as it got dark, my brother and I snuck over to his house. And the first thing we did is we took the license tags off his car and threw them like Frisbees. <clears throat> then we got a bunch of dog manure in my dad's boxer shorts. His car was open and we wiped manure on the inside of his windshield and on his back window. <clears throat> we took all the valve cores off of all four of his tires and put his hubcaps back on, <clears throat> which means that even if you put air in, it'll go out because valve cores are not something that you typically keep. <clears throat> and then I got a water hose, rolled his window down about three inches and rolled it up and turned the water on. And his car was completely filled with dog manure and water all the way up to the top. It took a few hours. We turned it on low enough so he wouldn't hear it in his house. Then my brother went up and unscrewed their light bulb in front of the house. And then we threw an egg as hard as we could at the door. He came out. And so when he came out, there was a silhouette of him inside the light. We nailed him with eggs, water balloons, you name it, and just demolish this guy, right? And so we go back to the house, and we had taxi cabs coming till after midnight. I mean, this guy had so much stuff going on. So he comes over to our house somewhere about 7.30 or 8 at night, and he's exasperated. He says, your boys, oh my, I can't believe what your boys did to me. And he's, I've I've never had anything like this. This won't stop. And my dad just looks at him very politely and says, well, let me query them. He slams the door in the guy's face. We all just stand back and lap our butts off. And a couple of minutes later, he opens the door and he says, well, sir, we might have thrown an egg or two. My boys might have tossed a water balloon. But as we know, boys will be boys. And he slams the door in his face. The guy knocks again and makes the incredible mistake of stepping into our house. One punch to his nose. Bam. This guy went down like Sonny Liston, you know, the time that Muhammad Ali had just bam down. So this guy splattered on the ground. His glasses are broken. And he's, he said, Oh, the police are going to hear from you. And he said, yeah, get your ass out of here. And yeah, you bring the police, you little chicken shit. So this guy goes home. So about 30 minutes later, a Montgomery County policeman comes to our door. And so he knocks and um, the policeman steps in. He says, well, you know, and he explains 
quarryman side of the story. <clears throat> so my dad brings my little sister out. And of course, she's got a fat lip, black eye. <clears throat> he said, sir, this man's son assaulted my daughter and beat her. And then he came to my house, stepped in my door and tried to assault me. All I did, and he's hanging his arm, is try to protect my property. And you think I did something wrong when he attacked my daughter and then attacked me in my own home? <clears throat> so at this point, the policeman looks at my dad and me, and then we trot my brother out, <clears throat> who looks like an angel. <clears throat> and he is the angel of death. You know, he's no more destructive kid. <clears throat> and the policeman rubs my brother's head, kind of looks over at me, my sister, and he says, men, whatever happened today, you're both at fault, <clears throat> unless you both want to go to the police station. I think you should both go home and forget it. Of course, when the guy got back home, <clears throat> it'd be hours later before we realized his car, his car was destroyed. <clears throat> it had to be towed to a junkyard. <clears throat> and uh, I mean, query man <laughs> never got over it. So we, of course, became legends for all the wrong reasons. <clears throat> there wasn't anybody within 10 square blocks that didn't know who my brother and I were. Yeah, and it's a great story, and it's well told. What you told it terrifically just now, it's great because in the book, you, you the reader gets sucked in with you and your brother because Query Man is such an easy target. Like you don't feel you don't feel bad for this guy who defended his kid, no, hit a girl really in the face. And and but what's great about the story is that later in the book, it shows you how easy it is to get sucked in because later in the book, your dad's asking you to do stuff a lot worse than than trashing a car or ordering pizzas to someone. So you could see it's like how Henry Hill gets sucked into the mob and goodfellas you kind of like it starts out as like okay we'll only go against we'll only go after bad guys or people that deserve it and then all of a sudden like things spiral out of control really fast really fast like what was al capone like when he was 12 you know? <laughs> right, yeah <laughs> so that's that's your dad and that's you Let, let's talk about your mother so you mentioned before you know the first sentence of the book is i was three and a half the first time my dad told me we had to get rid of my mother so let, let's talk about your mother and her role in this whole drama with you and your father well, my mother's story is the saddest story of my life, and it's something that I've never resolved. So believe it or not, my mother doesn't know about this book, and she's alive at 92. My mother, and um, my mother has got the mentality, and again, I love her very much, of about a 10-year-old, 8 to 10, very bitter, very angry. She doesn't understand the world very well, but she knows the world doesn't like her very well, like mentally compromised people. <clears throat> they know something's wrong, but it's just not them. Um, I call her a 92-year-old who's a 10-year-old with 82 years experience being angry and, and hurt. <clears throat> so my dad gets rid of my mom when we're still in Gallup. And by the time Query Man comes along, I have a stepmother <clears throat> who's the, easily the most evil human being I've ever met. <clears throat> and that's a whole nother story. <clears throat> so my uh, my mother, uh, when I'm 10, my dad abandons her, leaves her in an empty house, cuts off water, electricity, takes all the food, leaves a note. <clears throat> we don't want you. Don't look for us. And <clears throat> my mom goes homeless. And part of the, my charity in my book is to give to a homeless shelter in Albuquerque. <clears throat> this is something near and dear to my heart. Um, and I think my mom's dad, <clears throat> we eventually realized she lived through this. Uh, a really wonderful man, a philanthropist, got her a place to live, clothing, food, 
and even legal help to see her kids. She's the first woman in New Mexico to lose all four of her children in custody. It's really horrible. But mom was a child. She was more of a child than any of us, and she couldn't really function. And so um, my dad, Gallup, New Mexico, where we lived at that time, has incredibly steep hills. It's in the San Juan Basin, which is a coal mining area. And the 25 degree hills, like the hill where I rolled the tire, are not unusual, right? It's just up, down, up, down. My dad cut her brake linings, and that's only spoiler alert I'll give you, and thought that she would go down a hill and get hit and killed, and he'd be done with her. My mom, being my mom, um, stayed in that house for two or three weeks and drove 10 miles an hour around the entire town. And when the brakes failed, she was doing 10 miles an hour. A mechanic found her, fixed the brakes, and told her somebody was trying to kill her. But my mom, when I came back, my dad didn't know where my mom was and thought she'd be dead. I don't know any of this, right? I'm just a kid. We've moved. Um, We come back to that house, just dad and I. There's my mom in a fetal position. And I compare it to the National Geographic where you look in that woman's eyes and there's no hope. I didn't know what hopeless was until I looked in my mom's eyes and I started crying. I think I had a nervous breakdown seeing her in a fetal position in her own house with nothing, dead of winter, thin clothes, uh, a filthy mattress and nothing else. And my dad and mom both jumped up and tried to grab me. And my dad slammed her to the ground and said, don't you ever look for us again. I cried my eyes out. I get in the car with dad and I am completely devastated. He hits me in the head with his elbow hard and he didn't feel it. I didn't feel anything. My head hit the window, didn't feel it. His elbow hit my head, didn't feel it. I, um, I don't think my nerves stopped just constantly just in a state of nervous exhaustion. And I never told anybody until I wrote this book, what happened to me. And one of the reasons I bring it up is when I was in my early fifties, I kept going back to that house and being a lobbyist with clients in all 50 States, I fly everywhere all the time. And I was always able to, to stop off in Gallup, New Mexico, place that I still love. And, uh, I would sit in front of the house where this happened, knowing that something happened to me in that house that I was never able to fix. So long story short, the man who lived there was a widow and he bought the house after we left. And he raised his entire family, his wife passed. He was a city worker for the city of Gallup. He's a very nice man, but he was a very simple man. And he came out to my car when we sat in front of the house in a rental car and he knocked on the door. Why do you keep coming here? Why are you stalking me? I said, I I lived here. Something here happened so horrible. I can't get over it. So he, he challenged me. I don't think you ever lived here. So I described every bit of the inside of the house. You know, you have black and green tile. There's cracks. You have a rust mark on a pipe. When you walk up the wooden stairs, one of them creaks unless you fixed it. He brought me in. I walked into that living room and I saw three dimensions where my mom was lying. And I, for the next 10 hours, I told him everything in my life. Sunday, I never told anybody. <clears throat> he listened, he fed me. And on the way out, he said, you can't change it, but you can get over it. And it was the first inkling in my life. I might be able to get past what happened because I blame myself <clears throat> and felt I deserved no better. 
all the things a broken kid thinks. My spirit got broken there, and I had to unbreak it. <clears throat> I went back to my hotel, slept for a couple hours, and I'd taken notebooks all my life. I've always, since I was a little kid, <clears throat> and it's one of the few things I was able to hang on to. And I called my dad, which I never do and would never do, and he answered on one ring. <clears throat> and for the first time in my life, I confronted him. I said, did it ever occur to you what you did? And he said, F you, drop dead, you revisionist SOB. You are a mama's boy and a coward. I knew you'd never amount to much of a man. You don't amount to much of a man. You go straight to hell. And he slammed the phone down. <clears throat> For whatever reasons, I was free of him at that moment. I called my mom, <clears throat> took me a few times to get her. And I said, mom, I don't want to be hard on you. But do you understand that you begged me at 10 years old to go with you and to be the head of the house and we go on welfare, I deliver papers, cut grass, <clears throat> and that I, I was, my job was to take care of you. And without a hesitation, she said, you are my oldest boy, you abandoned me, you have a lot to feel bad about. <clears throat> you should have been there and you weren't and you know you were wrong and you're not next to me right now taking care of me. I'm sorry you feel bad, you should. And she put the phone down and I was free of her too. I understood that I'd lived my whole life <clears throat> trying to be evil enough to satisfy dad and depressed enough and big enough man to take care of mom. And I'd locked myself into a prison. <clears throat> I was in a box that I wasn't willing to let myself out of. So I went through a process of forgiving them. And then I started doing something I didn't think could happen. I began to forgive myself. And it was almost like having a an engine that is stuck and you put WD-40 in it and everything relaxes. And the next thing I know, I had a much gentler feeling about myself. <clears throat> I was much more open. My friends became closer to me. I became what you call vulnerable. I would never let anybody inside that <clears throat> protective wall. And all of those barriers fell down. And by the time I wrote the book, I had the book wasn't cathartic. Going through that was cathartic. Then I wrote the book. <clears throat> I had thousand friends and colleagues and clients write me and say, we always knew something was wrong. We're always on your side. And uh, I mean, <laughs> over 200,000 copies. And I think half of them are my friends <clears throat> or friends I met. Just because people realize that I had gone through this and that I'd done my best through this, but I hadn't known how to get through this. <clears throat> and one of the great shocks of my life, a year ago, July, <clears throat> the National Association of Tribal Indians, it's called NATN, called me and said, we want you to do our keynote to all of the Indian tribes. And we have a headquarters somewhere in University of California, Davis or Berkeley. <clears throat> and I said, I'm not an Indian. No spoiler alert there. It is a pale face lie, but we always thought we were. <clears throat> and I said, the last thing I'm going to do is pretend to be an Indian with a bunch of Indians. I did that as a kid on an Indian reservation. It doesn't work. And they said, we still want you to do the keynote. How much will you charge us? What, what's your fee? <clears throat> and I said, I don't have a fee, but I don't think you want me. And I said, tell me why you want me. He said, your description of being on a reservation is the most honest and accurate thing we have read. And your book has been in the top couple in Native American indigenous the entire time. <clears throat> and he said, do you know why? And I said, I'll tell you, I know why. Because 
the Indian people are very proud and they should be. And they've gone through a lot. And we know this. Um, They're either in the John Wayne movie, you know, the crazy people that make too much noise and charge, or they're the perfect native. There's no realistic uh, description of an Indian. What I did and what the whole book is, what I saw as I saw it, unvarnished, put me in my worst light or whatever light you want. I never tried to hide myself. I never tried to hide what I saw. I never tried to hide anything. I just told you what I saw. I did that uh, tribal address and uh, I got a tremendous amount of feedback that was all positive, almost all positive. And I understood that the strength of the book, strength of any book, is if you can capture something and not try to play to, you know, liberal, conservative, whatever it is. I didn't do that. I'm no hero. I'm not a complete scoundrel. I didn't invent a way to forgive myself and others. It took me forever and I didn't do it very well. I didn't come out of this perfect. I'm still a mess on some days. My siblings are a mess on some days, but somehow, some way I got through this. The angels that came through my life and you brought up one, Evelyn Luna, the 80 year old Navajo woman was the first person in my life that gave me unconditional love. And when she told me all the things she went through, I thought, oh, my God, if you can forgive that, then I can forgive anything that happened to me. So I had epiphanies. My first real coach, my African-American coach in my all-white school in Kensington, Maryland, thank God he's still alive and well, he he taught me how to be a man. He taught me what respect was. He taught me that you don't have to be mean to the people who are mean to you just because you can. It took me a long time to learn all that. But I had angels along the way, and uh, and I owe them everything. Well, let's let's go back a little and talk about the title that you said. You said things are obvious from the title. You said you were asked to give this keynote and you couldn't. So, you know, you you, you get out of this. You manage to get to college. You go to University of Maryland, right? Um, you get this package from your mother with the photos saying, "I don't want them anymore." Right? You're not you're not my son. Right? Your brother Sam goes to Korea. You had to fight in Korea. You get all C's and you say, that's it. I got I got to drop out or at least pause, right? You drive back to Gallup, New Mexico. You go to see an old neighbor of yours, Mr. Mr. Kantz. And he tells you, you should go back and get an education. But then he also drops this unbelievable bomb on you. He tells you what? What does he tell you? So let me explain quickly. <clears throat> After my mom sent me every picture of my childhood and said, I'm no longer your mother, <clears throat> it was devastating. Um, I hadn't kept up with her well. She was very hard to keep up with. She's very angry. And I did a miserable job of that. And um, I decided to drop out of school. And I drove back to Gallup, New Mexico, and the reservation town that I grew up in. I grew up in both towns. It's only 25 miles away. So I got a job working construction in Gallup. But every weekend, I would drive back to Fort Defiance, which had a still has a near and dear place. And my Navajo um, little league coach, 4-H leader, and he's also the father of my best friend, still my best friend, the Coons family. <clears throat> he's um, had 10 kids. Richard, my friend, was the second oldest my age. And Rex Coons, a full-blooded Navajo, he was a code talker in World War II, the, one of the original 29 that carried the code that the Japanese could never break. <clears throat> These men came back to the reservation. 
They came back as privates. They, a lot of them still couldn't vote at this point. Indians weren't legally allowed to drink till 1953. There's a whole lot to this. <clears throat> but Mr. Koontz was one of those simple but strong and bright guys. He was a very great man. <clears throat> and he was my first tough love, right? I would pull all the pranks in his yard and he and his wife would say, <clears throat> you got you to gotta get out of here. And of course, it never stopped me, but Mr. Koontz kept on me. <clears throat> and his I would go back to the reservation on weekends and the son, Richard, my age, had gone off to school somewhere and I would stop by and see Mr. and Mrs. Coons. And one day it got towards the end of summer and uh, Mrs. Coons said, uh, Mr. Coons wants to talk to you. And I, th- I thought nothing of it. Right. And so I, I go into his yard and it's this little yard and pull up a plastic chair. And he said, what the hell are you doing here? And I said, what do you mean? I'm from here. I belong here. I'm coming back. He said, you don't belong here. He said, let me, uh, let me explain a couple things to you. And let me be real blunt. You get your butt out of here and I don't ever want to see you again. You come back and I'm going to pound you. He said, let me explain something. You're not Indian. You're not Cherokee. You're not any kind of Indian. I'm an Indian. You're not. Okay, you can believe this. And maybe you think people believed your dad. They didn't. They just didn't care. <clears throat> so let me tell you something else. Your umbilical cord isn't buried here. No one wants you here. You have no place here. You're afraid of your father, and you're afraid of the life you left back east. So you get your butt in the car. You drive out of here. And if I ever see you again, I'll take you out. Go. I was so mad at him. And I loved Mr. Koontz, and I still do. And I got in my car, and I'm a mess. So I go back, pick up my stuff in Gallup, which probably amounted to two pairs of jeans and some underwear. And um, I decide at the last minute I'll drive to see my mom. I'm going to make this all right. No contact with her since she mailed all the pictures and said, I'm not your mom. I get to her house, and I say, Mom, can we wipe the straight clean and just can you treat me like a son? She said, you've never treated me like I'm your mom. And she was very angry with me. And I got in my car and I started crying worse. I drove almost 3000 miles without stopping. I walked back into the University of Maryland, my old fraternity house, and they're one of my angels. And I said, I'm back. And they said, your bed's still here. I went back to enroll in classes. The dean said, if you had stayed out another semester, we would have made you start over and you're the worst student we ever had. But you can start over. I started over and I never went back. So why did your dad create this lie that you were that you were Native Americans? Thank you for asking that. That to me, the, the book has several pieces, but the the motif, the part that goes through it. And this is a back to my dad being psychopath and just a very, very screwed up man. <clears throat> he knew I loved him, and at the end of his life, and we'll get to that later, I think, <clears throat> um, Dad wanted to be picked on. He was a guy that needed an issue. <clears throat> he needed a reason for you not to like him, for everybody to pick on him. So he grew up, forgive this, as a Dust Bowl Oakey 
white trash. That's how he really saw himself. <clears throat> His parents were your classic Dust Bowl, lived in cars, drove to different places to pick cotton, got kicked out, went to other places. My granddad would, you know, made moonshine, <clears throat> would get dragged off to jail during the Depression. They were just the most dirt poor nobodies. And dad hated it <clears throat> and he couldn't accept it. So he developed in his psychopath <clears throat> that he was a Cherokee. Cherokees are all around Oklahoma. <clears throat> They're one of the few tribes not on a reservation. And they did a lot better than the Indians that are on reservation, in my opinion. <clears throat> and uh, a lot of them were fairly fair-skinned. They were smart. But everybody picked on them. People picked on Indians, and he saw that. So for him to become a Cherokee allowed him to be a picked-on minority who deserved to be treated far, far better than he was. <clears throat> he was superior, but you thought he was inferior, and it gave him something that he could never have if he was really the son of two Dust Bowl white trash Okies. It took me a long time to figure that out, <clears throat> but I did. Whenever he would start talking about childhood, and it was his parents, his voice would be one way. But when he became a Cherokee warrior, he became Superman. <clears throat> and he would describe these stories, great feats that he had done, and all these things, you know, that all the Japanese he shot down in World War II, when the fact is he was in and out in one year, he's discharged before um, Mr. Truman dropped those A-bombs. <clears throat> But it took me a long time to figure this out. But I also learned a lot about somebody who's a psychopath. Psychopath wants to believe a lot of things that aren't true because it makes them either feel better about themselves or justifies why society doesn't treat them better. It's a weird dynamic. <clears throat> But for him to be a full-blooded Cherokee gave him something nothing else could give him. Yeah. It gave him a common enemy and a justification for all of his crimes and all of his anger. You know, one of the things that didn't make the book, I wish it had. But so my dad's last couple of years of life, I took care of him. This is a legal guardian, medical guardian. And I told him I was going to write this book and really made him mad. And I told him, look, too bad. I'm going to do it anyway. And he said, I'm an atheist. I don't care. And I said, I know that. And you'll be gone. So you won't worry about it. But one time he was in a rehab and he was horrible in the rehab. He was in a Jewish rehab and he called everybody there a kike. And I had to come a couple times to tell him, you can't do that. He would call the Germans crowds. I mean, he was just a disaster. <clears throat> But one night, um, it's about two o'clock in the morning and the hospital calls me. He says he's fallen out of bed and uh, or the rehab. You have to come help us. <clears throat> He's 210 pounds of mess. And I said, all right, I'll, I'll drive over if you want me to. <clears throat> so when he fell, he butt dialed me, if you know what that, you know. <clears throat> and so I'm listening for some reason. It dialed right to my phone and I'm driving along. <clears throat> and this male nurse says, Mr. Crow, we need to get you back into your bed. Tell me about yourself. Well, I'm a full-blooded Cherokee warrior. I have a number, <clears throat> a tribal number on the reservation. My family, my great parents were slaughtered by, you know, whites that came through. And he starts telling this unbelievable story. And I'm driving along at three in the morning and I'm laughing until I cry <clears throat> because it is so dead. What he wanted to do was mesmerize this guy. He even said he was a Cherokee elder that had been honored 
by the tribe. And, and I'm like, oh, my God, where do you come up with this crap? But he never stopped. And it was as important to his persona <clears throat> as anything else about him. It, it, it was who he was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a hard person to forgive. And you talked about forgiveness earlier. And as a kid, you were shocked, but you mentioned Evelyn before. Right. Evelyn, who knew, who was able to, you know, she was on the, you know, the, the trail of tears and she was able to forgive. She said, you have to keep going. And as a kid, you're just shocked by that. You say, well, how can anybody forgive these? And we still see, you know, you'll still see things on the news where the family of a victim forgive the, the killer or something. And you just watch those kind of stories and you're like, th- those people are so admirable. Like, where do they find it in them? Because we get, we, we get angry when someone cuts us off, you know, in traffic and things like that. So you're 52 years old. You call your dad. You talked about this before. You say, do you regret all the terrible things you did to me? He berates you on the phone. You hang up. You realize I got to break through with this, right? So so here's my question for you. Vengeance is easy to, to imagine. What do you tell somebody now who would say to you, all right, David, I read your book, but you know, I got a lot of emotional baggage, you know, with my parents, maybe they're not even alive anymore. I got people in my family and I don't know, man, I just, I just can't do it. I just, I don't see how you do it. Like, and your book is not a self-help book, which is why it's great. It's not sentimental. It doesn't make everything sound easy. But if someone said to you, how do you do that? Like, how do you forgive these people? What's your answer? Well, my answer is simple. And I get a lot of, of, letters and notes, just like what you said. And then people telling me I'm completely full of it and which is fine, right? You can think whatever you want, but what I under, so all of these memories and all of this unhappiness in me is like marinated. It felt like it was like a 52 year old crock pot or maybe even a 50 year old, two year old guy who's in a bath where the water never gets clean. It just circulates. The dirt just moves. The dirt ring moves from, you know, the front to the back. And you're just in this middle of this loop of hatred and pity and regret and all that comes with it. And you can't figure out how to get out of it. And you can't write yourself a letter saying, I love you. You are a wonderful child. And oh, blah, blah, blah. You know, because it's all bull. doesn't work for me. But what I did after I went through that experience with that man in the house where everything that I went through, or certainly a lot of it, came gushing out. And I wrote it all down, and it wasn't very different than other things I'd written. <clears throat> but I understood then that at some point you, I blamed myself, thought I couldn't do better, knew I didn't like or love myself, and knew that all these things had been getting in the way of me being <clears throat> a whole person. I knew all that, but I didn't know what to do with all that. When dad said all that and he put the phone down, I thought, you know, the true definition of a psychopath is everything's your fault. You can go straight to, you know, hell, nothing's my fault. And I understood nothing could change him. He's going to die a completely miserable human being. Hates his own parents, hates the fact that he's a dust bowl, all of it. And I understood that because he couldn't change, I'm never going to get from him. You know, I'm really sorry, David, this was terrible for you, but I didn't need it. What I needed was to understand that nothing could change who he was because no one would want to live at that point. He's a lot older than me, right? No one wants to live like that. 
No one wants to live in hatred. No one wants to live in anger. No. And I realized if I can forgive him, if I can put this in a place where I don't have to carry on the hate, I don't have to carry the grudge. I don't have to try to make my kids' lives as bad as mine to let them know, by God, this is what happens to you when you're a crow. If I can break this cycle, I've done a great thing. By forgiving him, and I later told him, I forgive you, you can't change, you're not, you're not anything. And he was like, F you, go to hell. There's nothing to forgive me for. And I just laughed at him at that point. <clears throat> but when I was able to place him in his proper perspective as something that had come into my life that had done great damage, that I can let it go. I can put you where you belong, but that's not me anymore. <clears throat> that's not me. And at the end of his life, <clears throat> where he knew it was the end of his life, <clears throat> there was a time about six months before he died. He thought he was going to die that night. And I'm in the hospital with him, and he's got every tube in the world. <clears throat> and he's he's got tears, which he never, ever did. <clears throat> and so he's frantic, and he pulls out a pad of paper, points to it, and I hand it to him, and he puts, can you ever forgive me? And he said, Dad, I forgave you a long time ago. You're my dad. I love you. And he he got teary-eyed. Now, when he got better, he got mean again. Now, and and I told him, he started screaming at me. And I said, you know, Dad, I knew you didn't mean any of it. You thought you were going to die and you kind of needed me for that time. And glad I got you through it. But you're who you are. You can't change. But I accept you for that. And he said, then why the hell are you here if you don't think I can change and you think I was a terrible guy, I said, you weren't a terrible guy. You'd have to be 10 times better than you are to be terrible. You're an awful guy. You're a horrible human being. You're a complete disaster. I'm going to be to you the son that you don't deserve. I'm going to pretend you're the father I wish I had. I'm going to do the right thing, but I'm not doing it for you. I'm doing it for me. And you have to understand that you didn't earn any of it. You don't deserve any of it. You were never there for anybody except to hurt them. But I'm going to be the son that I wish that I could be to the father I wish you were, to the father that you are not. And he said, so I I suppose you think all this do-gooder bull is going to buy your way into heaven. And I said, Dad, Heaven and hell's right here on earth. It is right here, right now. <clears throat> you don't have to worry about a hereafter, whether you're shoveling, you know, manure in a thousand degrees or you're floating with angels. You're living it. And however you go out <clears throat> and what you think about yourself will be your heaven or your or your hell. <clears throat> and you're near the end. What are your regrets? I said, forget me. What are your regrets about your life? And he said, I don't have any. There are a few bastards I wish I got. And I said, I'm going to give you something. The fact is, you're going out, you're going to go out of life the way you came in on your own terms. And I guess there's something to be said for that. And I said, but I still love you. And I really do. And I'll do anything I can to keep you alive longer. And despite everything you did to me and my sisters and my brother, I always tried to find a way to love you and try to find a way to feel some good about you. And I always felt that some part of the way you treated us 
wasn't your fault. You honestly thought that all the pain your father gave you, your father beat you with a wet rope till you couldn't move. You beat me with the buckle end of a belt till I couldn't move. You beat my younger brother harder because you believed that's the crow way. This is how crow men treat each other. And I'm here to tell you, you've taught me you have to break the cycle. You have to do this. I don't want a generation of crow men going on and on where they just beat the hell out of each other and go to jail and everybody hates them. And I said, you have to understand what you have created has to be undone. Uh, intellectually, he understood that perfectly, but emotionally, he just said, oh, you, all your do-good or bullshit, that's all it is. <clears throat> and I said, we're okay. I, I didn't, I'm not trying to change you. I'm trying to tell you who I am. You have to know that. <clears throat> and you have to know that I love you. Do I think you deserve it? No, I don't know. Do I think you deserve all the care and help? No. <clears throat> uh, do I think um, you have any right to be angry with anybody? No, I think a lot of people have right to be angry with you. And I don't think you've made peace. And he said, there is no peace. There is no God. I said, and there you have it, Dad. That is your life. That is you. And we had these kind of conversations. They're very tough. And I told him, I'm going to write the book. I've gone back to San Quentin and gotten your prison records. I tracked down your accomplice's son and gave your accomplice's granddaughter an internship in my lobbying firm and apologized to her family from you. You destroyed their life. He never got a pardon. He died never making more than minimum wage. His wife divorced him because she could make enough money to feed the family. And by the way, they forgive you too. I thought he was going to punch me out. Of course, he's 86 and dying and I'm not. And then at one point he said, just get the hell out of my house and never come back. And I said, well, thank you. Because now I'm completely relieved of putting up with you. You see, you have four kids. I'm the only one that's here. I'm the only one that puts up with you. I'm your medical guardian. I'm your legal guardian. I check in on you. If you'd like me out of your life, I, at that point, I'm at peace because it's your call. He called me the next day and he said, get over here, but don't bring up anything about my accomplice and and what, what I did. I said, well, it will be in the book. And I do want you to know that his son's a good guy. And his granddaughter was one of my best interns. And I gave them all the Freedom of Information Act so they know exactly why he was in prison. Because you see, he never told. He was so ashamed. And instead of coming to kill you, what he really did was struggle in job after job and got fired over and over and over again because he never got this office record. So what you really did is you destroyed a guy. And you didn't care. But... I care. And when I knocked on that guy's son's door, I was terrified. But you know what? His son was the kind of guy that I wish I was. He was forgiving and open and wonderful. And we are friends. And it's all true. And he sold more books for me than you did. I mean, everybody in his town's bought that book. But, But, you know, this is the goodness in people when you look for it. To me... Their people have a lot of good in them. Yeah, they're bad people, and we know that, and they're good people that do bad things. <clears throat> but if you give a person a chance, there's so many good people, and there's so many people that will help you and pull you up. And what I really found is that the world was a much um, 
more positive, forgiving place than I ever thought it was. And when you can't forgive others for what they've done to you, you also don't forgive yourself. And believe me, you're locked into the prison. You're locked into their prison and you're locked in tighter than they are. <clears throat> so when I get a letter, you're disingenuous and you're completely full of it because you forgave. And I said, forgiveness is a lot of it things. If you really have a great trusting relationship with another adult, look at my wife and you make a mistake, you fix that mistake. <clears throat> if it's of a moral nature, you fix it more and you don't repeat it. If you don't care, then, then th none of this matters to you. But if you do care, it's all about that. It's all about your integrity. It's all about your word is good or nothing's good. <clears throat> it's all about the quality of you as a person. And what you'll find, and Dad, what you would have found is how many people would have been glad to help you. But you decided you hated them. Um, <clears throat> when he got to the Bureau of Indian Affairs, Washington, from um, Fort Defiance for his training, so one of the guys went to Harvard. He wanted to take the guy out in the parking lot and beat the crap out of him just to let him know that he could beat the hell out of a Harvard guy who probably was wearing silk underwear. And I said, you know, the funny thing is the guy probably wanted to like you until you opened your mouth. <clears throat> and, but he just couldn't get out of his own way. I, I feel bad for him. He, he could have, he was smart enough to have done anything. GI Bill coming out of World War II. I mean, there was no limit to what dad could have been. Um, but what I really learned very early on is there are people who have the capacity to see themselves that way in a, in a better way. And there are people who can never get away from what they think they should, what they think they were taught, what they think they are, and they just can't get past it. And I'm not sure which is which. When I get a letter from a prisoner, he'll say, what made you not follow your dad? Well, I mean, I can't think of anything worse than spending some time at 10 20. Really, I just cannot imagine it. <clears throat> maybe a Russian gulag, but there's not many things. The other thing is I can't imagine trying to really hurt somebody for my own pleasure. To me, that is completely mm. antithetical to anything I believe. Well, it's funny because your dad has moments where he's kind like to the bear and to the coyote in the trap and, and things like that, where he has these little moments, but, but of course they're subsumed by all of the cruelty and hatred that he feels towards the whole world and to, towards everybody in it. You know, I tell people, dad loved animals and he always felt like they were victims and a coyote who's trapped. But here's what I tell people, and I'm not comparing dad to, to Hitler. Hitler liked children and dogs, and he genuinely did. <clears throat> he was very kind to children. I mean, I guess the ones he didn't gas, I mean, but, um, and he was genuinely loved his dogs. I mean, no one's 100% evil and no one, I think there were times dad really wanted to be a good guy, but whatever tripwire was in his head that made him angry, always got in the way of that every time. Yeah. And it, it's funny before, because what we just talked about, about this whole bit of forgiveness, and that's what's so surprising about the way the book ends, and that it's a great surprise, is that if this were a bad novel, I thought to myself as I was reading it, if, if, this, if this is a bad novel, here's how it's going to end. It's going to be, it could be a cheesy moment where you kind of touch hands in the hospital. And he says, I love you, dad. He says, I love you, son. And then we get the bad music. Like that would be terrible, right? 
for sentimental reasons, right? The other thing I thought to myself is I wonder if David's going to get even with his father because your father, we keep mentioning Scorsese movies for some reason, but he's also like um, De Niro in Cape Fear when he finds it where you live and you come home one night and there's a stack of cans on the table and that's his signal to you. Like, I know where you are. I'm going to come back and get you. He, you know, he has a plan to, to kill somebody, a member of Congress. Like it gets really, really serious. And then I thought to myself, okay, maybe the book is going to be David getting even with his father but then I thought to myself, okay, that might feel good momentarily for the reader. Like you got you got back, but but the whole point of the book is that long term that doesn't work because you just become this carbon copy of your dad. Is that is that accurate? You, you've hit it on the head. I think that you know, luckily I lived long enough. <clears throat> by the time Dad got sick, <clears throat> Dad never needed me, and he would have never been in touch when he. He, he was not in touch with me for a long time after that phone call. <clears throat> when he got back in touch, I knew he needed me. He's 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 sick. He knows he's going to die. The only reason he's me. getting in touch with you because <clears throat> right. he needs something, right? So this isn't spoiler alert time, but I knew when he reached back to me, he needed me. And he would say things like, I never hear from you. You don't come over and see me. And I said, gee, I think, where have you been the last 20 years? Uh, well, you know, that wasn't my fault. And of course, this is the whole psychopath thing. Nothing's your fault. <clears throat> but when dad did get back in touch with me, I made a very conscious decision. It was after I'd gone through what I went through in that house with that person. It was after I made a decision to forgive and to move past it <clears throat> and to try to be a person that I could like. One of the things I think that I did not understand completely is that when you're a when you are broken, for lack of a better word, you don't like yourself. <clears throat> I help teach an abnormal psychology class with these PhDs that are working with foster children. And I said, I knew more about psychiatry at 10 than you'll know when you die. I don't care if you get 25 degrees because you, when you live it like I did, like any of these kids do. <clears throat> but I said, let me explain three things to you that you may not understand emotionally. The kid doesn't like himself. He may even hate himself. The kid doesn't trust you because you cannot trust adults. The one you were supposed to trust who loved you have violated you in the worst way you can. And the next thing is, if you say, I'll help you, they don't believe you because they think that the person, their parent, finds out you ratted on them, they're going to hurt you a lot worse. What you have with the broken kid is a kid that really doesn't understand his own self-hatred. And if that grows and that's never fixed and you get a very angry adult who really, really doesn't like themselves, you've got a real problem on your hands. And, and I think a lot of these kids, <clears throat> when we don't understand their violence, we don't understand their anger, and it doesn't seem to make sense to us, these kids hate themselves. And, they, and, and when you get old enough to hate yourself to really act out you do it with guns you do it with a lot of things you shouldn't it's it's terrible <clears throat> but it really all starts back there or you create a persona for yourself like i'm a proud cherokee and the whole world has wronged me and therefore everything i do is justified every single thing your dad does in the book is justified there's a reason for it he thinks there's a reason for it a real man has a code and it's a code he lives by and to hell with your laws to hell with your rules that if you don't follow the code, you're not a man. And then when you understand what the code is, you're like, oh my God. Yeah, because it's twisted. It's not, he's not Shane. 
<laughs> you know, trying to trying to get the guns out of the valley in the movie. I mean, it's it's a terrible code he lives by, but it's it's he's totally consistent with it. And the book is about you. I think what you said about forgiveness is is saying like that uh, like that code is is BS for lack of a better word. Amen. So, so thank you so much for, for listening and to this interview. David, thank you so much for speaking to me about your book. I, I urge it upon everybody out there. It's wonderful. And there are many, many things we didn't even talk about in the book. So, you, close. Yeah. so if you're thinking, well, I don't know, I've, I've already heard about the whole book. Believe me, there are, there are corridors and corridors <laughs> of David's life we didn't even get into. So I urge you to read The Pale Face Lie. It's an unbelievably great book. I've gone around and, and I've held copies in, in the faces of everybody I know saying, you've got to read this. So I can't tell you, David. David, what a pleasure it was to speak to you today. Well, it's a total pleasure with you. And we do some work with Rutgers, my lobbying firm. Uh, this is on agriculture. Really? I'd love to meet you sometime. Absolutely. So when you're in the Rutgers area, let me know. I'd, I would love I to meet you. I would love to I meet will. you. And uh, don't leave your car out because God knows what I'll do to it. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs> Have a, thank you. <laughs>